Holy Father, we pause before lifting our hearts and voices in the worship of our great God and Savior to imagine for a moment the life of heaven. We cannot really imagine it. It is beyond our ken. But there in the midst is the Lord Christ himself, a human being, but also perfect and eternal God, the first human being ever to live in heaven in body as well as soul. Remarkable. And there he is head over all things for the church and continually intercedes for us. What a remarkable thing to know, our Heavenly Father. One more reason to love and to trust and to count upon our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Draw near by your Holy Spirit. Animate our worship, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I mentioned uh, in an evening service not so long ago a book I was reading by an Australian uh, professor of psychology, actually a German by uh, birth and uh, upbringing, a Thomas Suddendorf, a book entitled The Gap, The Science That Separates Us from the Other Animals. And one of the chapters in that fascinating book is uh, on the power of the imagination. Human beings alone have this power to, as it were, transport themselves to another time and another place, to imagine another world. It's a remarkable power, and God has given it to us, very obviously, that we can enter in to the things that have happened in the past on our behalf and to imagine the things that will come to us in the future because of the promises of God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, with that great power that you have, and no other animal, this extraordinary ability that God has given you, carry yourself back to that long ago day, there on the Mount of Olives, when the Lord Jesus said farewell to his disciples, and then ascended into the heavens and into the clouds, and eventually out of their sight, and the angels appeared, and one of them said to the disciples, not to worry or to fear, because the Lord Jesus would eventually come back to the earth in exactly the same way he left it. Remarkable. Can you see it? That Christ, having finished his work, now returning to the Father. Let us worship him and our triune God. The hymn is 289. Venerable Bede is the great early church historian of Great Britain. And this is hymn of the ascension of Jesus Christ.
seated, please, and on to prayer. Confession of our sins with a prayer appointed for Ascension Sunday. And now God's people together from the heart. Almighty God, we acknowledge from our hearts that we are unworthy of your grace and salvation. So little have we truly believed our Savior's conquest of sin and death on our behalf. How often we forget that the Lord Jesus now sits at the right hand, where he rules over all things for the church, that there he intercedes for us, and that someday he will return from there to bring salvation to all who are waiting for him. How often we are weak or discouraged because we have forgotten that because Christ is in heaven, we who belong to him are as much as seated with him there. How wrong of us that so great a Savior and salvation should not produce in us greater love and firmer hope. Forgive us for such little faith. Restore to us the joy of our great salvation. And help us to walk worthy of such, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. To assure us that our sins are forgiven, in more than one place in the Bible, as here in Romans 8, we are reminded that Christ himself intercedes for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ's death in our place for our sins, his resurrection and triumph over sin and death, and now still more, he intercedes for us at the right hand. If our prayers might not avail, surely his shall. Confess your faith in this salvation and this forgiveness, standing to your feet, giving answer to this question from the Heidelberg Catechism. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he pleads our cause in heaven, in the presence of the Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand. Continue your confession of faith in Jesus Christ, your Savior, with this magnificent hymn of his ascension by Christopher Wordsworth, music by the great English composer of the 19th century, Hubert Perry, 291. Set the Lord Jesus Christ before you and sing to him.
be seated. Please continue your worship now with your tithes and offerings. present our gifts ourselves to God. Let's stand and confess his triune name.
I draw your attention to Joshua chapter 22, point we have reached in our sermons on Joshua. Another of these texts that uh, unless uh, your minister preaches through the Bible, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, you are highly unlikely uh, to ever hear a sermon on. And uh, all the more's the pity because it has uh, a very important message to bring uh, to us. With chapter 22, we begin the fourth and final section of the book of Joshua. If you remember, the first section was identified by the frequent repetition of the Hebrew verb to cross and concerned Israel's crossing of the Jordan River into the promised land. The key word of the second section, which extended from 513 to the end of chapter 12, was the verb to take, because that section concerned Israel's conquest of the land. The key words of the third section, extending from the beginning of chapter 13 to the end of chapter 21, were the verbs to allot and to possess or to occupy. That section concerned the division of the land among the tribes of Israel. The light vort or key word of this final section is the Hebrew verb to serve, because this section concerns Israel's response to all that God had done for her and given to her. Israel is now to serve the Lord in the land the Lord her God had given her. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. It's important to the rest of the story to remember that the two and a half tribes had been faithful. They had fulfilled their obligation uh, to help the rest of the land or help the rest of the nation secure the land and uh, had deferred their own settlements of their own new lands uh, east of the Jordan in order to do so. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him. And to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. This is the great theme of the the last section of Joshua. Let Israel be careful to remain faithful to the Lord and to serve him. Um, Verse 5 is a beautiful summary of the Christian life. This is what the Christian life is. This is what Christians do. They Obey the Lord. They love God. They cling to Him through thick and thin. And they serve Him because of His gifts to them. Now, to the one half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. 
Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. We've not yet heard, but we soon will, why the two and a half tribes did this and why the nine and a half were so concerned. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, he's there because right worship is a key issue. Um... And with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, including one from the half-tribe of Manasseh, settled in Canaan, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and they said to to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today... Then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And did he not perish alone? Or, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Now we understand the fear of the other Israelites. They imagined that the altar was for the purpose of worship and sacrifice. But Israel had been commanded to offer sacrifice in one place only, at the, tab- at the tabernacle, soon to be located at the place the Lord would choose. It was characteristic of Canaanite worship and of the Canaanite worldview that they worshipped everywhere. They conducted their orgies on the top of hills and by big trees and so on. But Israel was not to do that. The localization of Israelite sacrifice in one place was meant to preserve the purity of that worship. But here it seemed the two and a half tribes had built an altar of their own and a place of their own choosing, just as the Canaanites would have done. The tribes who settled in Canaan also fully appreciated the principle that what some of the tribes did, some of the people did, everyone was responsible for. There's nothing in the text to suggest that this zealous rebuke was not both proper and exemplary. Every generation of God's people ought to be concerned about the purity of the church. They ought to realize that their own health and the health of their own future generations are at stake. 
After all, this sort of infidelity expressed by participation in pagan worship had happened before in Israel. They had fallen prey to the influence of Balaam at Peor. Of course, it could happen again. It's already happened. So the tribes west of the Jordan urged their fellow Israelites to move to the west of the Jordan, together with them, abandon their holdings, wealthy and rich as they were, and settle among the rest in Canaan. That would serve to keep the Israelites together in faithfulness to Yahweh. They'd be nearer to the tabernacle. It would be easier for all to worship rightly. On the other hand, it's worth noticing already that the placing of the altar, where it was placed, suggests purer motives on the part of the two and a half tribes. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, the God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, El, Elohim, Yahweh, the majesty of the Lord um, communicated by all his names. He knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought... If this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before this tabernacle. So, This is the passionate response of the Transjordan tribes. They had never intended to use the altar for sacrifice. It was rather built as a witness to their children and the children of the present tribes um, east of the west of the Jordan that they were Israelites through and through and that they intended to remain faithful to the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Lord their God and the law of Moses. They were afraid that as the generations passed, that river would become a boundary and the people east of it would be thought no longer to belong to the people of God. It was not an empty concern. The rift atop which the Jordan River flows from north to south is the deepest trench on the face of the earth. It really is, even still today, a barrier and a boundary. One geographer refers to it as the colossal ditch. When Phineas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, 
it was good in their eyes. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Israel's faith and her unity rested on that joint conviction that Yahweh was the one living and true God. Heavenly Father, take this long ago event and disclose to us the reason why such a detailed report of it has been included in your word. Teach us from that word, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We think of Joshua, and rightly, as the history of Israel's conquest and settlement of the promised land, the fulfillment of the promises made by the Lord to Abraham centuries before. But the book ends not so much reminding us of what the Lord had done in giving Israel the land of milk and honey and the wealth that it contained, but with the recognition that with God's gifts comes a corresponding obligation on the part of those who receive them. An obligation to respond in gratitude and faithfulness. Everywhere, as you know, this is the message of the Bible. It is the summary of the entire Bible. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We love him because he first loved us. In view of God's mercies, we must present our bodies as living sacrifices. He saved us to make us zealous for good works and a hundred other texts like those. But the saddest fact of biblical and church history is that this faithful life of love and obedience tends almost always to lose its way, to lose touch with its foundation, and finally to go to ground It may take several generations. It may sometimes take many generations. But sooner or later, the faith that lived in the hearts of great-grandparents and grandparents can no longer be found in the hearts of their descendants who have somehow, for some reason, and perhaps without conscious intention, become Canaanites again. These last chapters of Joshua, we've already noticed, are preparing us for the long march of the kingdom of God in the history of the world. Last week, for example, we considered the origin of a feature of that history that was going to prove decisive in so many different ways. The local congregation of believers, their pastors, and the ministry of the word. Well, here again in chapter 22, we find one of those fundamental perspectives on the unfolding history of the kingdom of God. The great message of Joshua 22 is that Christians must take care to preserve the faith or it will be lost. There really hasn't been to this point in the Bible such a clear, unabashed warning of this danger or summons to take steps to prevent this outcome. There will be many to come, as you know, but this is the first full-length warning that a living relationship 
with the Lord is hard won, but easily lost. It's a fact writ large over the spiritual history of the world and the Christian church. It's one of the most important facts of all. We have here, alas, the shadow of apostasy overspreading the future history of Israel and the people of God. An apostasy that will darken the otherwise glorious story of the gospel's progress to the four corners of the earth. Happily, in this case, it proved to be all a misunderstanding. But there hangs a tale on the fact that this episode is reported in such detail. In fact, what we see is both parties doing precisely what they ought to have done. Nobody is in the wrong in Joshua 22. The one side should have worried about the long-term fidelity of their children and grandchildren. The other side should also have worried when there seemed to have been already unfaithfulness rising in the camp. And the reason is because, although it didn't happen on this particular occasion, it would happen soon enough. And alas, it would happen repeatedly through the ages. We can tell that sad story in regard to innumerable Christian families. We know Christian families who have kept the faith vitally alive through three or four or five or six generations. Nothing is more wonderful. And that it should be the case is the repeated teaching of the Word of God. How often does the Bible promise that God will give His grace to the umpteenth generation of those who love and serve Him? But we also know of so many families in the faith, biblical families, church historical families, families in our own generation of the church, in which faith so strong in the first generation has withered or actually disappeared even by the second generation, if not the third or the fourth. I know, I no doubt some of you know, Christian people whose hearts are broken because their children or their grandchildren have lost all touch with their own Christian faith. And of course, no, so soon or so often, after the connection has been broken between uh, that connection of faith and spiritual life, the rising generations in that family almost invariably will be unbelievers, not faithful Christians. Scores and hundreds and thousands of people who might, who should have been Christians, are unbelievers instead, scarcely aware of what might have been their spiritual inheritance in the kingdom of God. But the story of Christian families is replicated on a larger scale in the history of churches. We have a congregation in the Presbyterian Church in America, Manor Church in Cochranville, Pennsylvania, long known as Fags Manor Presbyterian Church, a congregation that was organized in 1730 in the tumultuous days of the First Great Awakening. It remains a congregation of evangelical Christians these almost three centuries later. But how comparatively rare churches that had been faithful to Christ and his gospel through so many generations. It's not of, unheard of, of course, at all to find churches that continue in faithfulness to the Lord and his word after a century or a century and a half or two centuries. But how many more are there who have lost their way at some point? 
and have begun to produce not ardent followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but unbelievers with a religious tinge. In Europe, such churches are the vast majority. In America, their numbers are growing apace. Last time I was in Edinburgh, I did as I always do. I made a pilgrimage to St. George's, the church which a hero of mine, Alexander White, pastored for almost 50 years in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It's a large church with a towering spire in the fashionable West End, just a few blocks from the fabled Princess Street and only a stone's throw from the castle. It was known as Free St. George's in White's day because it was a congregation that, influenced by the evangelical revival, had left the Church of Scotland in the disruption of 1843 to become part of the Free Church. The the present building it occupies was built by the congregation during its Free Church days. With most of the Free Church, it returned to the Church of Scotland in the early 20th century and now again is simply known as St. George's. It's a church with a history of notable ministers. Andrew Mitchell Thompson pastored the church before the disruption. Thompson, a leading evangelical in the Church of Scotland in his day, was a preacher of considerable power. He edited an influential church paper. He was a author of some significant books. And he was, as we know as a congregation, a considerable musician. He wrote the music appropriately entitled St. George's Edinburgh that we use for the verses of the 24th Psalm that begin, Ye gates, lift up your heads on high. He was a faithful pastor. He started a Christian school for the neighborhood. Thompson was followed by Robert Candlish, the leader of the free church in the middle of the 19th century, a theologian of international reputation and the principal, we would say the president of the free church's theological seminary. Candlish was then followed by the greatest preacher of all of St. George's pastors, Alexander White, who held the large congregation spellbound for nearly 50 years. You can still see a plaque in the narthex of the church, a profile of White in stone with an inscription describing his long and faithful ministry and the undying affection of the congregation for him. A few of you old-timers may remember that this congregation gave me a gift in June of 1995 to commemorate the 17th anniversary of my ordination and installation as the pastor of the church. It was a beautifully bound volume of handwritten transcriptions of sermons delivered by Alexander White in Free St. George's in October and November of 1881. Interestingly, at the beginning of of several of the sermons, the transcriptionist, whoever he was, entered a note right beside the text and the title of the sermon and the date on which it was delivered. In one case, it reads, Church Full. In another, Church Very Full. Free St. George's was one of the most celebrated congregations in the Scottish Church, and the very large sanctuary was full almost every Sunday. What is more, the church was like some famous churches of our own day. It was not only large, it was influential. The pastor's messages were published in books read all over the world. St. George's was Redeemer 
and Saddleback rolled into one. The first time I visited St. George's in 1984, it was a weekday afternoon, and I just happened to find the janitor on the premises who graciously led me or let me into the sanctuary to see the pulpit where White preached and to absorb the atmosphere of that great sanctuary. But the last time I was there, the doors of the church were open and the narthex was filled with booths and all kinds of activity. It was music festival week in Edinburgh. The city has a world famous music festival every August. And many organizations seek to take advantage of the hundreds of thousands of visitors to the city who swell its streets and halls during the festival week. Well, St. George's Narthex was filled with what I suppose would be called social justice organizations peddling their wares. Crafts from Africa were on sale, printed material describing the various programs to promote social justice in other parts of the world were there for the taking. They were hoping you would sign up to support this or to support that. I was with my son-in-law and Jim Price and wanted to show them the sanctuary, but there was a musical concert going on and they wouldn't let us in. But the narthex was interesting in its own right, and I found on a rack a newsletter from the church itself. It was full of this report and uh, an account of this meeting having to do with the now very familiar approach to social justice using all the predictable vocabulary so beloved of the liberal church that has no longer any message of eternal life or the forgiveness of sins or of the real justice that comes with the transformation of the human heart by the power of God. The name Jesus Christ in this substantial pamphlet, the name Jesus Christ did not appear once. And nothing was said, nothing whatsoever of the church's commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a message of salvation from sin, as the true hope of the world's peoples. There was nothing distinctively Christian in all the pages of that booklet, and I looked very carefully from beginning to end. As it happens, from what I was given to understand, Sunday would have been more dismal still. The congregation is small, services poorly attended, not a hundred people, a tiny fraction of the immense crowds of people that used to fill the church twice on Sunday to hear the sermons of Candlish and White. Sad to say, it won't be long before there isn't enough of a congregation to sustain that large building, and it will be sold for condominiums or for a nightclub, as so many Church of Scotland sanctuaries have been over the past 40 years or so. That's one example of thousands upon thousands that might be offered of the very same spiritual collapse into false religion and irrelevance that the Israelites west of the Jordan feared had already taken place or had already begun amongst them when they saw that altar near the Jordan River. We have large sanctuaries here in Tacoma that were once filled to the brim with worshipers every Lord's Day, morning and then again in the evening, but in which now a small congregation rattles about. Lest we forget, the same thing would happen again in Israel in the very next few generations. The momentum of faith and love would be spent and Canaanite practices would begin to be embraced by the people of God. 
There is, sad to say, but important to know, a kind of second law of thermodynamics in the spiritual world. Things tend to fall apart. They tend to grow weak. They tend to die. The church may grow for generations, transform the world profoundly for a time, but eventually she grows weak. And she grows weak invariably by compromise with unbelief. But we have not only the prospect of such apostasy here in Joshua 22, but the antidote to it as well. What this generation of Israelites did, that is the men of Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, was to bear witness to their fellows and to the rising generations of their determination that they would be and would remain the people of God, faithful in his worship, serving him in their lives. They built a huge replica of an altar on the opposite bank of the Jordan as a testimony to the fact that they belonged to the people of Israel, that their heritage was likewise the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that they were committed to doing all that that heritage required of them. Every time they traveled near the river, they would see that huge altar built not to make sacrifices, but to remind them of who they were and what they were as the people of God. And when their families were with them, they would explain to their children why that altar had been built and what it meant. These Israelites were doing the very same thing that the parishioners of the old kirk in Kiltairn in Rothshire in northern Scotland did when they laid a stone that everyone entering the church would have to step on A stone that bore the inscription, This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring an ungodly minister in here. This stone shall bear witness, which is to say, we want God to take notice of what we are doing. We want Him to inspect our lives. We want our lives to be subject to His correction and to his rule in every way. These people were taking the future seriously. They were taking the danger of spiritual apostasy seriously. They were taking with absolute seriousness the necessity of a continuing fidelity to the Lord, to his word, and to his worship in the rising generations. What we see in these two and a half tribes is the exact reverse of the spiritual complacency that Amos would later famously describe as being at ease in Zion. That mindset, alas, that is found everywhere you look in the church. It's as if Christian men and Christian women were saying to themselves, I'm saved. I'm right with God. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I can relax and enjoy my life in this world. In the confidence of my own position, I needn't be so zealous. Having heaven, I can have the world as well. Now, Christians will rarely say those words to themselves, but though through the ages a vast number of people in the church have behaved as if that were what they were thinking. But that's no way to preserve faith in the next generation and in the generation after that. A shadow cannot produce a shadow. 
Faith that endures through generations will be a zealous faith, a witnessing faith, a vigilant faith, an active faith, a faith concerned as much for children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren as it is for oneself. The faith that is in, that is in evidence here in Joshua 22. We see just that in both of these groups. The point being the clearer precisely because they are both demonstrating the same concern. To be sure that living faith will endure in Israel. It is the zeal for fidelity that is the key point here. The methods required, of course, will change from time to time. And judgments must be made along the way. The interesting thing here is that while zeal for Israel's fidelity to the Lord is front and center, concern for the unity of the people is equally obvious. The solution that the nine and a half tribes first propose is that the two and a half tribes abandon their claims east of the Jordan and come live with the rest of Israel in Canaan. They thought there would be strength in that unity. And the rest of the Bible lays great emphasis on that fact. The church is strongest, her faith is most impregnable when she is united and conscious of her unity. Zeal for doctrinal integrity that forgets the importance of unity can do as much harm to future generations as doctrinal and liturgical laxness. A divided church, a fractured church, always loses its influence on the rising generations. Most churches that originate in schism It is a sad fact, but true. Get smaller, not larger, as the years go by. Such divisions may be necessary. I do not deny that they may be, but nobody should ever imagine that division is a likely path to greater things for the kingdom of God in the generations to come. The sad fact of our life as believing Presbyterians in America in the 21st century is that the die was cast a long time ago. And that there are many, many fewer of us than there used to be and that our overall numbers are declining rather than growing. Our individual churches, the Presbyterian Church in America, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, may be growing slightly. We're glad for that. But the overall story is one of precipitous decline. We have lost the future generations just as these wise Israelites feared might happen. Thankfully, the numbers of believing Presbyterians elsewhere in the world are soaring, but not here in America. Apostasy kills not only that generation guilty of the betrayal, but the generations that will come after What we see in Joshua 22 is a zeal for Israel's unity and a zeal for Israel's fidelity that both together amount to a concern for the future of Israel's spiritual life. When in any time and place the generational connection of faith in God and holy love is broken, the believing church becomes a remnant. The term the Bible uses for the small group of real believers within the larger body of God's people who have lost their way. It is, of course, better to be faithful even in small numbers than to be unfaithful. But how sad to have lost generation after generation, thousands if not millions of people who should have been Christians. 
and are not. We're warned against this eventuality in Joshua 22, and we're shown what generational faithfulness requires. A people is concerned for the spiritual life of their children and their grandchildren as for their own. A people vigilant for any sign of spiritual defection. A people zealous to take whatever steps they might take to bear witness to their children and their children's children of their own faithfulness to God and their determination to see the rising generations as faithful as they, if not more so. I have no simple nostrums to offer you. The story of the church and the kingdom of God in the world is a story of struggle, of progress, and of setback. No one who has read the history of the church and therefore knows how inevitable the spiritual slide seems to be will ever tell you that he or she knows how to prevent this. No one who has counted up the hundreds, if not thousands, of educational institutions in our land that were once loyal to the gospel of Jesus Christ and are now its avowed enemies will imagine that such an apostasy can be prevented by this means or by that. Joshua 22 teaches us to care deeply about this, to worry about it, to be concerned about it. And insofar as it depends on us to do absolutely everything we can to protect the unity of faith in the church and still more to cultivate that faith in God and that love for serving him in the hearts of our children and our grandchildren. If the bond of faith and love between the generations is often broken, it is not by any means always broken. And God forbid that it should be broken in our families, in our church. May this church still be proclaiming Jesus Christ. Can you see it in your mind's eye? Still proclaiming Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, 300 years from now, when all of us have long been forgotten. And may this congregation, larger then than it is now, still be adorning the gospel, still bearing witness to it in worship and in life. The only way that we can be sure that that will be so is if we, in our lifetime, are determined to make it so. Amen. It is the first Lord's Day of the month, and in keeping with our tradition here, an ancient tradition indeed in the Christian church, we take an offering for the deacon's fund at the time of the Lord's Supper. Give your gifts to God.
first hymn we will sing during the communion is 290 after the choral anthem, so have that, have that hymn ready for your use. Our Holy Father, we are well aware that the path to true and ever-deepening faithfulness and usefulness in the kingdom of God is the ordinary path. Faithfulness in worship and the word and amongst those elements, certainly the Lord's Supper has pride of place. Here we come for the umpteenth time because we need for the umpteenth time that animation of faith and hope and love, that strengthening of spirit, that deepening of conviction that is the blessing of this sacrament to us as we partake in gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ for all that he has done for us and promised to us. Lord Jesus, draw near by your Spirit. Feed us with yourself, we ask. And we pray it in your own matchless and powerful name. Amen. It is in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and in remembrance of him that we do this. For in the night in which our Savior was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after they had eaten, our Savior took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul adds that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.
In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, whom he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and also Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, whom was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's stand together and sing our final hymn, number 298.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.